So here's some exciting news. The On Being Saturday morning email newsletter is back. Curated by our wonderful colleague Kristen Lynn, The Pause is an offering towards the common life we hope to embolden and accompany. Our way of living the questions with you while also providing food for reflection and conversation. You'll receive updates on our latest conversations, writings and poetry from our blog, invitations to live events, and other news and musings. Subscribe now at onbeing.org slash thepause. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. America Ferrera is a culture-shifting artist. From Real Women Have Curves, Ugly Betty, and Superstore to her social healing initiative, Harness. And John Paul Lederach is one of our greatest living architects of social transformation, from Nepal to Northern Ireland to Colombia. We brought these two together at the 2018 On Being Gathering. What follows is a revelatory, joyous exploration of the ingredients of social courage and how change really happens in generational time. Where did we nourish and foster the creative imagination that permits you to bring into the world something that does not now exist? You know, that's the real challenge of a lot of the work of conflict, is that you're trying to bring something that does not now exist. That's the creative act. Sometimes all we have to do is shift our attention and shift the light and allow for these people with powerful, strong voices and stories and solutions to speak for themselves. And that's, I've found so much power in shifting that light. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. From John Paul, I've recently picked up this phrase, social courage. I really love that phrase. Uh, That's what I want to have, and I want us to share with each other. Um, And then we have America Ferreira, who is on some of our very present American front lines of danger and reckoning, this call to social courage. Do Do we claim this or not? And I, you know, I think I, another phrase I've been using lately is social artistry, social arts. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you also are a bearer of that, like a teacher of that. Just by virtue of being yourself, you end up in yourself grappling with a lot of the pain and fear and divisions and challenges that mark this American moment around women, immigration, race, socioeconomic well-being. Um, one thing you've said about yourself I am the daughter of two immigrants who worked several jobs to keep food on the table and the lights on. And by the way, we still found joy in life. We still loved people and had relationships and breakups. (laughs) Something John Paul has said about himself, I have traveled most of the globe on the backs of people whose lives are held together by the wars they fight. So what we have here is an artistic conflict transformer and a conflict transforming artist. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Um, America, I wonder how you would start to talk about the religious and spiritual background of your life, of your childhood, whatever those words mean for you. I love that. (laughs) I really have waited so long. Um, And last night thought, oh, God, I don't have an answer. Um, That's not true. I have an answer. Um, You know, I was thinking about it all weekend and and last night, and I I feel like the, the simple sort of shortest explanation of the spiritual background of my childhood is sort of this groping in the dark. My parents are immigrants from Honduras. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. My mother was very skeptical of religion and the Catholic Church, and she'd left a country she felt was hopeless when she left. Um, and, and so I was never taught how to pray, right? And I was never taught what God was. And, um, and yet, 
I remember making up my own form of praying by the time I was six years old. I would lie in bed and just ask God to protect um, my mother, my my siblings, you know, that my mother would come home safe from work on the night she worked one of her three jobs very late. And um, so there was sort of so early on a seeking and um, no one gave me a roadmap. No one taught me how to talk to God or what God was. But so early on, I was seeking and seeking in the dark. And I think it's served me really well because this moment has felt like darkness for years now, um, as a woman, as a person of color, as a patriot, as someone who loves this country, um, it's felt like darkness. And my now dear friend, Valerie Kaur, gave this beautiful speech on um, New Year's Eve after the election in 2016. And she said something like, "Um, what if this is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? And America is a country waiting to be birthed, and we are being called to breathe and to push. And it changed that the whole context of the darkness I was feeling. And I thought, I can do this. I know how to do this. I know how to grope in the dark without a roadmap. And so that's sort of the element that is with me right now in this time. Um. Wow. <laughs> so... John Paul, how how would you? I wonder. Um, I know about you know your Mennonite background and how that flowed into what you became. But just in this moment, what is there something in your spiritual the spiritual background of your life? Also, perhaps just what has emerged through your vocation that is especially present to you? Yeah, I suppose that with time and exposure to a lot of these situations that have that deep level of darkness. Oh, and finding ways to seek the light, you open up, at least I found that to be true for me, you opened up to any of the sources that began to shed light, whether it's from the daily conversation all the way up to, you know, I sometimes consider myself a, a Mennonite who writes haikus and studies contemplative Buddhism. <laughs> who loves Sufism and listens carefully for the divine in the everyday because it's miraculous. So sometimes the formal structures and shapes that I grew up with, I want to always take a a sense of gratitude and deep appreciation for having had uh, a caring, loving community that made community serious. And I also don't want to feel bound by boundaries that sometimes our communities can create. I'm, I'm interested in boundaryless identity. <laughs> and so how do you, how do you find that uh, meaningful weave that is expansive? And that's um, sometimes understood and sometimes not well understood by those who find more meaning in keeping the gates a bit more closed. So it's an ongoing love affair with my own community and beyond. And love affairs do have turbulence. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Yeah. You've spent so much of your career in many countries. And this moment of tumult is actually global. I mean, there's a sense in which what's happening here is our our Mm. manifestation. I just wonder if you have been surprised at what's happened in this country or, you know, how you see this in the context of everything you've seen in terms of social tumult across the years? Well, there's a part of, um, surprise would be that it's totally unexpected. And I think, uh, you know, it took us a long time to get from the writing of a constitution to the Civil War. It's taking a long time to come to the full understanding of how deep that actually was and how it's left remnants. One of my big, most uh, meaningful uh, mentors that I had was Elise Boulding, who was one of the pioneer women of the peace studies field. Kenneth and Elise were a Quaker couple. 
And Elise always, she had this phrase about the 200-year present. And I think it might be useful for us to think about the current moment mm -hmm. in reference to how she would frame the 200-year present. We, we students would be walked through this very simple exercise. You can do it right now in the next two minutes. So here it comes. If you just calculate for a minute. So when she said present, she meant like past, present, future. And she's saying you live in a 200-year present. So if you go back to when you, at your youngest age that you can remember, who the oldest person was that held you, and then just calculate back to their birth date, roughly. You know, mine would carry from great-grandma Miller would go back into the 1850s, actually into the period close to the Civil War. And then you do the second part of the process, which is you think about the youngest member of your extended family you know, this uh, minus two months. And then imagine a robust life to what decade might she or he live? And then she would always say to us, once we've done all this kind of work, she would look at us and say, you were held and touched, and you will touch the lives of people that cover a 200-year present. And I think that's where we lose sight, that there is a deep process of change that we are about, Mm -hmm. And it is impatient, as one of my friends and one of the famous writers in Nicaragua said, it's impatient patience. Uh, we have a ways to go, don't we? Yeah. We have a journey to take. Yeah. So, America, you know, you have a face and a voice in this moment. I'm curious about, like, the evolution of your activism because I, and, like, the inner life of your activism because... Just from the outside, you know, there you were, a very prominent voice in the Women's March, a raised voice. I also experience you to really be a questioning voice, right? To be a listening voice as well. And I, I and asking about the world you want and the shoulders you stand on. And I'm just curious if you'd share a little bit about like, what you've been learning. Yeah, that's a big, uh, really, really big part of my journey um, is this grappling with sort of boundaryless identity. And um, I think a really, really big part of what has shaped me um, or my understanding of myself is the cutting off of my knowledge to my identity. When my parents left Honduras, they left so much behind and, and they didn't want to bring it with them. And, and I had always been taught to worship the U.S. soil that I grew up on, that I was so blessed and I was so lucky to be born and to be raised on this land. And I really internalized that. And I was the most earnest American named America there was. And, <laughs> and, um, and it really wasn't until very recently, probably about eight years ago, that I traveled to Honduras for the first time in my life, wow. so, you know, stepped foot on the land that, that I knew I had some connection to, but really was only in my imagination. And I, I was so um, taken by the unexpected feeling of tragedy, of the tragedy of immigration. I'd only been told to be grateful and to be glad and to be excited that, that I didn't grow up in a war-torn, corrupt country. And so that was a moment where I realized that I had never been full in my identity because I'd never been given the opportunity to mourn what had been lost to me. And how that relates to my activism is that I was so confused and frustrated by my activism for so long because I just wanted to be an actress. <laughs> and I, again, going back to when you're young, I thought I'm gonna be an actress and I'm gonna be a human rights lawyer. And that made sense to me, you know, <laughs> when I was in first grade. Um, and there was nothing at odds with that. And when I got into college, I had this quarter life crisis um, where I thought, oh no, I, I've made the wrong choices. Like. The there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much to fix. And I'm going to go be an actor? Like, how does that make any sense? And I had convinced myself that, that the only right thing to do was, you know, to, to make up for my 18 wasted years of life was to quit acting and go do something that mattered. And I had a 
professor of peace and conflict studies, um, whose office hours <laughs> I walked into, and um, and just started blubbering and crying at Professor Dave Andrus's desk, saying, um, "I I have to give up my career." And I didn't even know he knew I was an actress, and he. He stopped and said to me that he had a, a young Latina female mentee who he'd been mentoring for three years. And one day she said to him, do you really want to know what my life is like? And he said, yes. And she said, then come watch this movie with me. It's called Real Women Have Curves, which was the first film I ever starred in as a 17-year-old. And the character had a dream of going to college and her parents did not support that dream. She had to work in the factory to help her parents make ends meet. And he watched this movie with her and, and her friends and they said to him, you know, they'd never seen themselves reflected in the world around them. They'd never seen the culture acknowledge their existence and their struggles. And, and anyway, he was able to kind of speak to her parents specifically through this movie about supporting her wish to go to college. And I could not have imagined or scripted that I would be alive in a moment where there is this ripple in our space and time where artists and art and culture are so being called to step up and, mm -hmm. and speak from an activist heart. And mm -hmm. um, I feel like I was born for this moment, born to be there. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with America Ferreira and John Paul Lederach. John Paul, like, one of the things you learned as a professional peace builder, I mean, I think you would say that just a huge catharsis and deepening in your, your art and practice of peace building was understanding the arts, even when we use that language, yeah. it sounds like something in a box. And also that, that we also professionalize that. But what I got from you is you, in being proximate to that kind of conflict and suffering, understood that it's so often true that our deepest pain and the deepest things we have to reckon with and resolve lie in a place that words and analysis don't touch and that art, the, all the arts, and just our capacity to sing mm -hmm. uh, is as essential as any tool or any conversation. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I have this running question that I've been struggling with. Is, uh, I used to write a lot of poetry when I was younger. And then when I came into my um, formal PhD studies, I had a 15-year hiatus. And I always wondered, what was it about becoming professional that took the poetry out of me? And coming back to it, what I discovered, among other things, is a lot, a lot of what you have a capacity to be trained to do, which are very important things, but it's based quite often on analysis. And of course, the notion of analysis is that you, we know by breaking things apart in some form or fashion. And analysis in and of itself doesn't have the heart to put things back together. So where, where, where do we find um, the capacity to think in ways that hold something that's a wider whole but it's not entirely visible because it's gotten so fragmented? And it, the further you go down one avenue, it just doesn't have that. So you have to find ways to bridge. And for me, it was definitely the arts. I mean, a, a tool can give you something concrete that you can imagine using, but a tool is not going to give you persistence to know what to do when you're in a dense forest. It's not going to tell you which path to take. <laughs> it's not going to give you a sense of how you're going to come through a blustering storm. It's not going to give you the metal that when everything feels like it's been destroyed around you, um, you can't just pull out a tool. You have to have some way that it connects much more holistically. And then what, what you find, of course, is that uh, and this was, f for me, the part that was so powerful is that um, the people who were the most inspirational were the ones who were inventing things that none of the 
professional world had thought about <laughs> because they were, you know, like the campesinos in Medio Magdalena, you know, out of the blue, no formal training at all, hit decades of one armed group after another, and the principles of their organization start with quota. If you want to join, you agree that you will die before you kill. Principle one, we will seek to understand those who do not understand us. And I'm thinking, these people are artists. I mean, literally, they started the very first peace zone in all of Colombia that then spread to other parts of the, of the world, the notion that a local community can simply say, no more guns here. And that's, so when I look back, one of the big questions I had was, where did we nourish and foster the creative imagination that permits you to bring into the world something that does not now exist. You know, that's the real challenge of a lot of the work of conflict, is that you're trying to bring something that does not now exist. That's the creative act. And so I think it goes back to holding these worlds together. Something you said um, that just struck me as, again, simple and so important, and remember that the person in front of you is a human first and an opinion second. To be human is to story. So remember that before you was a person trying to understand their story, one of billions that make up our family. And then, you know, um, Mariah, sorry, we have a Mariah in our family. (laughs) Um, America. (laughs) Um, You're part of what you call this small, silent revolution in pointing the camera at the common person who is not saving the world or the world's best FBI agent, but who is just getting by and, and doing this, finding the humor and the love and the stakes and the victories and the tragedy in everyday life. Yeah. I so appreciated something that was said. I think I'm talking about you know, this notion of, of giving voice to the voiceless and how that's, to me, very flawed, that that they've always been talking, no one's been listening. Right. And, you know, being raised by a single mother who, for the majority of my life, was the manager to a department of women who cleaned hotel rooms, um, I was surrounded by women who other people would think of as voiceless, as powerless, as disenfranchised. And they're not. They're stronger, more powerful, more solution-oriented, more solution-driven um, more resilient than anyone else I've, I've ever known. And going into people's communities, into their lives, and seeing the ways in which they resist and the ways in which they find joy um, is so heartening and humbling because many of us, I think, we sit in our positions of privilege feeling guilty for our privilege. And we live in this idea that we have something that other people might not have access to, but we don't often think about the things that we don't have access to, that Mm -hmm. people that we would consider less privileged than ourselves somehow manage to keep at their fingertips at all times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think so often about the dreamers and the the, the children, essentially, in this country who led themselves, they led their own movement. They realized that, that their salvation was in them stepping into their leadership and doing the most terrifying thing, which was to be visible in a world that demanded them to remain invisible. And as I've traveled the world and had firsthand experiences with these communities that are fighting for their own daily survival and their daily dignity and their daily joy, I realized that, that that's what we need. <laughs> and, and so for me, as somebody who has managed to procure a platform, uh, it's scary to use that platform because you feel like I have to have all the answers or, you know, how could I possibly speak if I don't have the PhD in 
you know, conflict resolution or diplomacy. Um, but sometimes all we have to do is shift our attention and shift the light and allow for these people with powerful, strong voices and stories and solutions to speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, I've found so much power in shifting that light. After a short break, more conversation with America Ferreira and John Paul Lederach. Subscribe to On Being on Apple Podcasts to listen again and discover produced and unedited versions of everything we do. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, change-making at the edge of our imaginations with artistic conflict transformer John Paul Lederach and conflict-transforming artist America Ferreira. We spoke at the 2018 On Being Gathering at the 1440 Multiversity in Scotts Valley, California. I mean, America, you're working in, in these spheres right now, these other uncoverings, right? Like the breaking of silences that have kept us apart. And I also feel like the, the women's movement, right, 50 years ago. And America, you had this way of talking about it, you know. These things we've learned subtle ways to get what we want without getting angry or seeming angry. All these years, we know how to walk into a room and make everyone feel comfortable with their intelligence, not threatened by it, how to bring up great ideas that we help them think are theirs. Yeah. <laughs> we said we're trained for that from day one. And I gave away all my secrets. You <laughs> gave away your secrets. But yeah, but so, so... How do we let anger have its righteousness and also its place in healing, right? You have to get angry before you can move past it. Yeah. How do we hold that? And I just wonder how each of you, like, what is that creative tension? Mm. Do you want to go? No, you <laughs> <laughs> um, this was what I was having a conversation, actually, with Eula uh, a couple of days ago, who spoke and blessed me. Because she was asking, how can I do loving kindness and, and how can I do anger? And how can I hold them together? Because mm -hmm. if I err too far on one side, trouble kind of emerges. And um, yeah, it's like, it's an old country western song that said for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditches. Um, it's, I, I, it, for me, I never understood this until... Um, in the 1980s, you know, a decade of work in Central America. And very, very close to people that I cared a lot about who got, whose families were harmed. And my own family, we experienced a lot of things that you wouldn't sort of imagine happening. And one of the things that I discovered is if, you, if I went back and reread the Psalms, for example, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of rage, murderous oh, rage. rage. Yeah, and appeal, appeal to do stuff, yeah. you know, that seems to, that it comes and we have to find when it's unhealthy because um, there are times where uh, loving kindness can be unhealthy and there's times when anger can be unhealthy. But without them, uh, we're not going to get anywhere because it's this, I think the, the passion or the thirst for change necessarily has to say what I, that haiku notion that it, the world must be revealed for what it is. 
And what it is, is it's creating a lot of harm. So how do you unpeel the cataracts that are blocking the ability to simply see it? And sometimes it comes up in ways that it's, it's going to just burst. And then at the same time, I am deeply convinced that change must be relationship-centered. We don't create change purely on the basis of the content of a policy. We don't create change purely on the basis of winning an argument or even winning a particular vote at a given time. Change has something to do with who we're going to choose to be together as the human family. And until we understand that, uh, this is why I was working with that notion of the moral imagination, the imagination that uh, you're in a, a web of relationship that includes your enemy because your grandchildren are going to be mutually affected. So how to hold these two, I think it's actually the art of, of everything. Social courage, I'll come back to that because I think it has a little piece on this very concretely. Courage is actually living from the heart, the notion of where the word courage came from. In highly polarized settings, one of the ways I understand social courage is it takes courage to reach out to things that are not known, not well understood, that may be threatening to you, that may in fact pose a threat to everything you believe. So there's, there's a certain kind of courage that it takes to reach into that unknown. But there is also a courage that is required of us that when we see our own community dehumanizing others, that we have the courage to speak to that dehumanization. So social courage cuts in both ways. And this is sometimes the hard part is that we, we just would like it to be one way. But then we're, we're backing away, aren't we, from the complexity. Mm-hmm. We're not willing to sit with the mess of who we are in a way that you know, finds a way to speak to that clearly. The psalm that I ended up with that was most helpful for me was Psalm 85. Truth and mercy have met together, justice and peace have kissed. You may be familiar with some of that phraseology. It was actually the psalm that was read over and over and over again to start the village-level negotiations in the east coast of Nicaragua. And when I was sitting in those locations in bombed-out churches, with people who were in the same rooms who had come from different sides of a war where they had lost families and had been shifted out of a country. And they're sitting there, and the first words they hear are truth and mercy have met together. It sounds like truth and mercy are people. Peace and justice have kissed. It sounds like they're people. So I began to ask, what if truth showed up here today? (laughs) What if mercy showed up alongside a truth? And how in the world do you hold truth and mercy together and so it's not choosing one over the other but somehow they're they're there that's i think that's the real challenge to learning to live with that tension not avoiding it this was exactly my question and and it came from something that i've been holding and grappling with since the day after the election was less how did those people vote for trump it was how did we who I believe to be the majority, where did we fail in communicating with one another what our duty in this moment was? Mm. What are the conversations and the questions we're not asking ourselves? Because clearly what aligns us has not been as strong as what aligns what won on that day. Why is it so hard for us to get into the same space and for women of color to feel welcomed in a woman's movement? And we want to go right past all of the, the anger and the hurt yeah. that has been present for generations and put forward this united front that isn't genuinely and truly united in what aligns us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually, I used to be really disturbed by the, all the violent psalms. And then I, when I studied theology and got in behind that, like I, I really appreciate that, yeah. that at the heart of the Bible, this too comes before this God. Is, and is. you speak this out loud. Yeah. And also when I learned that, you know, those are common prayers. And so you're not always praying just for how you feel that day. Mm-hmm. And that there are, is always somebody in the world and too many people in the world who, who are righteously full of rage. And I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I also wanted to say something that's been so on my heart Mm. 
this entire weekend has been our indigenous brothers and sisters. We so rarely ask the question, like, whose land are we standing on, you know? And we think about reckoning with this country and the history and the past of this country, and we so rarely want to begin with the original sin yeah. Yeah. of massacre and genocide of an entire indigenous population. And they're so rarely evoked and called into these rooms um, that I think that if we really want to reckon, if we really want truth, we have to start there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what... Um, what gets hard then when we start to put everything in the room that we have to reckon with is that then it starts to be overwhelming. Like, how do we begin there? Yeah. And, um, and so it feels to me like we have to, we have to reckon with that question too. Like, how do we begin? Yeah. And not just get paralyzed. Yeah. Um, and not, like, carry our guilt as though that is a form of responding. Um, I wonder, and I'm not sure this is right, but I, I do want to talk about critical yeast. Hmm. And I wonder if that's an image to bring into this because what, what I've, I've learned this from you, John Paul, of um, seeing how reckoning comes, transformation comes, um, that what happens before and during and after the critical mass is the critical yeast, mm-hmm. which is human beings starting. Yeah. Starting not knowing how they're going to tackle it, but starting. Like, would you... Absolutely. So, the, among the, the many things that I have a tendency to have some bias towards, um, my particular one says that I've just noticed how important it is to have small groups of people who have that quality of relationship so that they can serve in ways that begin to echo that out into larger groups and you know it's missing if large numbers rise and dissipate like the next morning by noon. Um, so, it, And we, we know that up and down of what we hope was the signs of something big that was coming, and then it doesn't quite, quite go. And so the critical yeast was actually just very simply that so many places where I was working, there was not large numbers of people that were yet at a place, but there were these unbelievable people who refused to let it be the way it was. So, you know, in my field, we spend a lot of time understanding content, and we spend a lot of time understanding process. So we have know-how and we have know-what. These people were good at know-who. They constantly thought about the web of their relationships. In Central America, for example, the Spanish have this, the Spanish language has this wonderful phrase that if there's a, a problem, your first question is, who do you know that knows? So it's this uh, notion that you're a part of a web of relationships. And that know who uh, is based on trust. And what conflict destroys, what polarization separates, is that it, it, it drains our, our reservoirs of trust. And it pulls them back into only trusting, in the narrowest sense, people who already are and believe very much like you. So in the, in the, one of the language words that I found really interesting was that if you're in the middle of some of this and you're looking for what to do next, you first think about who do you know that knows somebody? Who do you have trust in that knows somebody that has trust in? And that word was actually, who is allegada? So allegada would be a word that's built around the word llegar, which is the word uh, to arrive at. So it would be like, who is the person that sits in the doorway of the house that we would like to have a dinner meal in to see what this is actually about, mm-hmm. right? It's that kind of a, of a notion. And what, what I found pretty consistently, I think there's limited power in convening people to your space or to trying to create the perfect table and space. I think one of the things that I found more transformative, if you can get a, even a small number, two, three, or four, who actually travel, that is, I don't even mean literally travel. If I'm with America and we have this approach, I go and spend time where she's from. She's my allegada. She's the person that opens the, the doorway. And when I go, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to sit and listen. 
My view is that you start small, uh, but you care for the quality. So it's not the quantity. It's another un-American statement of yours. It's not the quantity. It is, so the critical mass actually in physics is not the quantity. It's the quality of a particular interaction Mm. that creates the replication of energy. Mm. But we have under-attended to. This is what was so brilliant what you were just saying. We've under-attended to Mm -hmm. creating the quality that recuperates the trust that we need to build what you call, Krista, the connective tissue. Yes. That's, uh, so that's the notion. Critical ye- the yeast word was simply to create the provocation, the smallest ingredient that when well mixed. I mean, there's a lot of questions around yeast. So you, First of all, yeast, if it sits in a jar, is useless. So it's not yeast per se. You have to take the yeast out of the jar, and then you have to prepare it. And typically, you do that with a little bit of moisture, a little bit of sugar, and not too much burning light. All right? So you're actually talking about kind of a preparatory space that we don't often want to do. And then when you put it in the mass, you mix it. But you never accept the first mix or two. You keep beating it up. You need it. I don't care if you're growing, go back down. We're going to try it again. And so just the metaphors kind of captured imagination about what actually people who were in a situation where they felt um, that there were only a few of them could understand that this may in fact be the ingredient that makes everything else grow. And how do you attend to that quality? That was really what critical yeast was about. Quality of relationship. Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, How Change Happens, with John Paul Lederach, one of our greatest architects of social transformation, together with artist-activist America Ferreira. I feel like when you are talking about like right now, and this is the way you've said it, you're part of these multiple overlapping, converging initiatives, mm-hmm. um, some of which are very well publicized now, some of which are more emergent, um, and that it's essentially leaderless. Mm-hmm. There's no great, I mean, that there's no great charismatic leader. It feels to me like a lot of what is brewing, and especially like in Hollywood, in, 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 among artists, is kind of new form social innovation mm. are you thinking of, about it that way are you feeling that that there's yeah. not a path what i'm feeling is that it's so complicated and and that um we're figuring it out and that when you're at the kind of edge of what you know and you're at the edge of what what you can see in terms of what is evidenced about what works it gets really uncomfortable and we, we go to what we know. And so, you know, something beautiful emerges out of uh, a moment, excitement, you know, yeast sort of reaching a point where it explodes into something great. But then our human instincts kick in and we want to control it and we want to define it and, and we want to put it in a form that we recognize and understand. Yeah. And, and so the instinct can be, who's the leader and and what's the process and who reports to whom and what's the chain of command and who gets to use the logo and you know right, right. you and and defining the we and that part is is really it's really the creative part because if we can't bring our imaginations to that moment then we just recreate what we've seen and what's been created, but we're trying to push something new into the world. We're trying to bring something through that's never been brought through and it's hard. And we have to continually remind ourselves that that our discomfort and our grappling is not a sign of failure. It's a sign that we're living at the edge of our imaginations. I wonder, as just as we close uh, reluctantly, if just maybe if you have questions of each other like before we close or... I love, I love bringing this generational friendship into being. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Um, 
when you talk, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary range of things. And so how, how do we best imagine mm. ways to support that being um, strong and, and mm. supple yeah. that can weather the things that will likely come? Because I, I think the, the, the great hope, I think, is in the rising, the rising generations. <laughs> you know, it's just clear as a bell in so many ways. Yeah, I, one thing that I, has been really on my mind is this idea of what we, what we place value on. And, and I think, you know, we have uh, a certain way of thinking about change and how change happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all up in the air right now. And there are people yeah. doing the work of deep culture shift, but we have to value it as a society with our money, with our time, with our journalism, um, with the conversations that we choose to have. This is a storytelling exercise, mm -hmm. this era we're living in. And who's telling the story better? <laughs> And who's out there trying to tell a new story, trying to tell a different story, trying to shift the form of the story? And how do we get behind them? How do we get behind the young people who, um, who understand that this isn't about politicians and it isn't about our elected officials? This is about the stories we tell each other and that we choose to believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have so many questions um, for John Paul, mainly, like, can I have your email address? <laughs> so, yeah, so we can yeah. keep in touch. Um, yeah. uh, but I, you know, I have so many questions. I guess the, the personal relationship question, I guess, would be, has there been a relationship in your own life that you've built that was that unexpected relationship that shifted the way that you could see things? And if yeah. so, what did it shift? Oh, absolutely. And it's been in different places. I think the one that would come most to mind is my, uh, my very dear friend, um, Ricardo Esquivia from Colombia. Ricardo um, grew up in the streets because his father had leprosy in the outskirts of a little town in, in the north part of Colombia. And um, from that starting point as an Afro-Colombian to becoming a human rights lawyer, he um, and I developed a relationship because it traversed some things that, of times when he had to leave, came up to where we are so that he could have periods of safety for his family, and then going back. But the shifts always came for me with Ricardo that were basically this. You can be angry, but don't become bitter. Uh, you can be angry, but don't refuse to talk. Mm. You can be angry, but don't forget to love. And he's slightly my elder by about a five, maybe eight year period. And um, there were periods where, to be honest, my anger was headed more for the bitter. <laughs> I forgot to love. Mm. And then you have this extraordinary friendship of somebody who, who's been through so much more, who just comes alongside, I love alongside, takes your arm and says, let's walk. And I think that's, for me, what shifts it is that it's a quality. So the big difference between trying to create a conversation for instrumental reasons, because you have a purpose that you want to try to get somebody to do something, and committing yourself to friendship, even though you're deeply different in many things that life has brought, that's a shift. And I learned that from, he would be an example among many, but that for me was very, very powerful in my life. I'm so glad you're both in the world. Yeah. Thank you, Thank John you Paul Lederach and America Ferreira.
John Paul Lederach is a senior fellow at Humanity United and professor emeritus of international peacebuilding at the University of Notre Dame. America Ferreira is an Emmy Award-winning actor and producer. She's known for the movie Real Women Have Curves, the TV series Ugly Betty, and she stars in and co-produces the current NBC series Superstore. She's also the co-founder of Harness, a grassroots organization for social healing. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Casper Tech-Kyle, Sue Phillips, and Jeffrey Basoy. Special thanks this week to the wonderful 1440 Multiversity team, especially Susan Freddy, Susan Coles, Janice Smith, Michelle McNamara, Steve Seabock, Avery Lauren, Joshua Green and David Dunning, also our great colleague Zach Rose. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the Henry Luce Foundation in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.